0: Welcome to the Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavisoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Bavisoto and Les Ottolenghi.
1: Please roll out the virtual red carpet for the goat of angel investing in the Southeast, the founder and managing partner of co-founders capital, Mr. David Gardner. Welcome to the program, David. Hey, Mark. So we have a feature on all our podcasts, right? So we really want you to dig deep here. Give us something that nobody's known. You never told anybody in your life, right? more honest, the better. What is a story that the world doesn't know about, David, that will help us get a better understanding of what shaped you as a person?
2: Well, I used to prime tobacco in the fields. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Not many people know that. I did a seminary degree. Not many people know that, I guess, unless they really dig down in my LinkedIn profile.
1: So let's touch on that just a tiny bit. You have a very interesting background, right? You hold degrees in philosophy, music, and this is interesting, with a postgraduate concentration in theology and dead languages. So two-part question here. I mean, first of all, what is dead languages? That's number one. And then how did you end up in technology is the second question.
2: (laughs) Well, the answer to the first is a dead language is uh, anything that no one speaks anymore, which I particularly like because no one knew if I was saying things wrong. And, uh, The second part of how I got the technology is all of those degrees left me with absolutely no marketable skills, which is actually the nicest thing universities did for me, because uh, if no one will hire you by default, uh, you are an entrepreneur.
0: David, this is Les. Thank you for being on the show. Um, I know you're living in North Carolina. Where do you live in North Carolina, just generally speaking? I live in Cary, right here in the Triangle. Oh, awesome. Beautiful place. A place that's grown exceptionally do you have a dead language and a phrase you could say for our audience? And I'm going to have them then try to figure it out. We might even offer a prize for this one, but go, do you have a sentence you can do in a dead language? (laughs)
2: Well, you don't really speak dead languages. You you just read them, you know, you read the manuscripts. So it's more of a reading thing than a speaking thing.
0: I was hoping you'd have one of like a cocktail trick for us. Like you go with your wife to a (laughs) friend's house and you start talking to her in this language and raise your eyebrows a bunch and they start wondering all right. All right. I'll give you one. Uh,
2: Martis Karmorotheos.
0: Oh, wow. That's the last time you ever say that to me. Uh, what, do, do we know Do we know what that means? <laughs> it's literal translation.
2: "as God is my witness. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. very good. How did this bridge happen between somebody who's obviously highly intellectual, maybe a bit, you know, and broad in this sense of thinking, get down to a focus on technology? What, what, what was the path that kind of... Ultimately, took you to be inspired to be in technology.
2: I had to do a master's thesis, and my professor was a linguist. And to piss him off, I thought I would type it in uh, (laughs) Koine Greek, write the whole thing, and make him translate because that was one of his weaker languages. And um, unfortunately, it had to be typed. And so uh, I heard about this thing called a computer that you could get, and you could draw characters and put them on the screen. And so uh, I really got it as a very cool typewriter for dead languages because it's hard to buy typewriters for dead languages. I got into it, and it shipped. It was an IBM PC, and it shipped with the uh, Basic A programming guide. Your documentation used to come with what you bought. And so uh, I started reading that, and the first command was beep. And I entered the interpreter and typed in beep, and the computer went beep. And I was like, you can tell it to do stuff? That's amazing, and that was the catch for me. I started writing programs, and uh, the guy next to me had a little retail center that lived next door, and he needed a point of sale system, and I said, you know, I think I could tell this computer how to do that, and another guy needed an inventory control system, and I started buying computers and networking them and putting them in places, and back in those days, a solution really was a solution. You wrote the software, you wrote the training manual, you serviced it, hardware, everything. And uh, then I started taking classes at NC State and actually realizing how horrible my code was uh, once people actually started telling me how it should be done.
0: Holy cow. Now, aside from the uniqueness of a a swap shop where you can find uh, computers that that write to dead languages, did languages (laughs) and then the construction of computer language, because computer language, you know, encoding is not like the most addressable thing. Did it help you? have studied languages to understand the languages of machines?
2: You know, maybe. I mean, syntax is very important in a language when you're, especially ancient languages where you're trying to figure out is it past tense or current tense or future tense or computers are very picky about syntax. And so I probably did give me some attention to that.
1: Talked a little bit about kind of your foray into, into writing code, but what was the, really the first company that you had major success with?
2: Well, it was that it stemmed out of my uh, writing those early programs and putting in hardware and software solutions. And that company, uh, eventually, I sold off the hardware piece of it and just focused on software. And we got into bigger and bigger projects. And at the height of that first, uh, it was a services based company, but uh, at the height of that, it was about 200 developers. Les, you're a Duke grad. Um, one of my projects was writing the admission system for Duke University. That was a huge project back in the. Uh, Early nineties, I,
0: I can and, tell you there's a fault in that program. They let me in. <laughs> so there was some some error in your code. Holy cow!
2: Well, I told my daughter if she ever applied, she was guaranteed to get in. But she got <laughs> went a different direction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny. And so you took that company and you sold it, correct?
2: Yes, I sold it to an Indian company that wanted a footprint here in the U.S. And you know, while I was there, I started two uh, SaaS-based software companies. Whenever I had guys on the bench meaning you had no billable work for them. I had them working on my pet projects and one was pulling resumes off this new thing called the internet and oh. coding them, reading them, trying to figure out you know the different disciplines and routing them to the right hiring managers. And I thought it had commercial applications and uh, I spun that out. I found a big pharmaceutical company, GlaxoSmithKline. My first contract was half a million dollars and if the product really didn't exist. It was just some code on a server. So I put a user interface on it, raised capital, and that became PeopleClip, which later sold for $100 million in an all-cash transaction. And then the other one was just a a tool for managing the distribution of reports and resumes and our financials, anything. And that was called Report to Web. And about 11 months into that project, I sold it to a company in Amsterdam for $12 million. And so I, I was done with services at that. Point. because services you know, grow very slow and it's a yeah. treadmill. I realized if I ever stopped working this hard, selling these projects and servicing these clients, all the money would stop coming in. So I wanted something more scalable and SaaS-based software. I realized I needed to be owning the code I was writing. <laughs>
0: What did that sort of practical approach inform you of? Was it because a number of our listeners are either in startups or they're innovating inside of an enterprise. There's this real pressure for our enterprise subscribers to be part of a team that develops new products all the time. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like listening to the market need was the essential ingredient here or or what was it? Was it your own imagination or is it a combination thereof or, or how did you come to these successes? Because that's pretty phenomenal.
2: Well, I did seven startups and all but one of them was, I would say, successful. I say I had seven startups and one I don't talk about. You know, that's a very popular question. when I I spoke actually at at Duke to an MBA class last week, Les, and um, the question I probably get asked the most is, where do you get startup ideas? And I'm like, how can you not have a startup idea? I have like seven in the shower every morning. The, The world is full of stupidity. You just find the stupidity and fix it where there's, you know, inefficiency, where things cost too much or take too long. I tell the students, if you can't find anything stupid to fix, go work for somebody. You'll find it in abundance there, I promise you.
1: So now let's talk about investing a little bit, right? You've seven startups, sold a few of them, put them out there. You have a good amount of cash. You start angel investing, correct? Was that kind of your first goal? It was like, hey, what was the first company you invested in?
2: Is it bad? I don't remember. I've, uh, I've invested <laughs> in companies. of companies. Um, you know, I started off small and I was in a little angel group that uh, did not do very well. And I learned kind of what not to do working with those guys. But then I got into some other angel groups and then I decided I was better off just on my own and started, you know, putting a little bit of work, you know, 50 grand here, 100 grand there, just kind of spreading it around and had some big hits. And then I kind of learned what to look for. And uh, they don't really teach you the subtleties of looking someone in the eyes and figuring out, you know, is this the jockey that's really going to drive this horse home? Is this the team? Is this a nice to have or is this a must have in the market? You know, is this the person that's going to be able to really look at data and be data driven? And is this person going to listen to me? Do I have any influence? Are they coachable? Because if they don't have if you don't have influence in that company, you might as well put your money in the stock market. You're a, you know, you're a passive investor at that point. So there's a bunch of little things that, you know, you look for, but the idea is not nearly as important as the entrepreneur that's driving it. I learned early on, I got too excited about the idea and and I realized it's all about the entrepreneur and maybe 10% about the idea because a bad idea and a great entrepreneur, they won't be doing that long. They'll figure it out and go, wait a minute. This doesn't work for this market. Let me try selling it to that market, you know, or, ooh, this isn't the right, you know, go to market strategy for this or they'll figure out something. But so it's become more psychology than business. I think uh, successful investing, um, if that's fair, but, you know, I'm still a pretty new investor. I did angel investing for maybe six or seven years and I've done professional investing for about that long now. And um, it really takes about 15 to 20 years in the VC community to be considered a real venture capitalist because you have oh. to have a few cycles of de- you know deploying an entire fund and watching all those outcomes and then deploying them all again. And then once you've done that full cycle, you're kind of a real VC. It takes a while.
0: <laughs> and for you, what, what's your comfort level? in given that you have this effort and due diligence that now you put into these, these startups, which if you talk about the personality and the entrepreneur, that's a lot of time to, to, to really evaluate stuff. How many startups can you invest in comfortably at one single point in time?
2: That's a great question. Actually, it's a um, something I've struggled with over the last year. Is, is, and I've come to realize that what I'm doing is not super scalable. You know, the more investments you make, the less and less time you have for each one. I've expanded my team. I have uh, two full-time partners. They're both serially successful entrepreneurs as well, and two uh, part-time partners who are both serially successful venture capitalists um, who advise us on fund management, fund planning, and things like that. How much cash to hold in reserve, and and when you know all the stuff that that's really more fund management related and they're good with with startup stuff as well. But you know, still, we like to do early stage stuff and early stage stuff requires a lot of handholding. And so our last fund was $31 million. We will probably do one more fund in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 million, but that's about as big as our fund will ever be because that's all the money we can deploy you know at the startup level because you can't really have more than 20 companies you know in a particular fund and really spend the time with them that you need to spend with them we've also leveraged some of our venture partners we've leveraged people from industry to to be on boards and help so you can do it but you just have to be really smart and realize that you can't do it all yourself
0: and what does that look like in terms of outcomes how often are you exiting And what is typical time period for one of your startups so that you sort of have this velocity of investment? Is it every five years or do you count that you have staggered the investments 10 a year? I'm making up a number, of course. Mm -hmm. And then you expect in year five after five years of investment, the first set gets matures and the first batch and then the second batch. How do you look at that and how do you manage that investment portfolio over time?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I, was, I used to think it was all about just doing, finding great companies and listening to pitches and doing your diligence. And now I'm discovering that's only like 10% of it. The other 90% is protecting those, investors, those investments and seeing them through and helping them grow and helping them get their next round of funding. And doing tremendous amounts of interviewing to bring the right management team into the company. It's all about the work after you make the investment. And, and that's where a lot of angel groups and people uh, break down. They think it's about making the investment. And, and a lot of the times it, it, it's more about all the work. It's a many, many year commitment. But when we deploy capital, we make an investment, you know, every two or three months, you know, once in a while we'll do two months in a row, but it takes... Two to three years to find the companies, to get your 17 to 20 companies and get them invested. So it takes two to three years to find those companies and make those investments. It takes two to three years for each of those companies to grow up and get to a place where they might get a good acquisition offer. Uh, then it takes a little bit of time beyond that you know, for some of the ones that are growing slower or some of the ones that are doing really well. And uh, your outcomes are typically about a third of your early stage investing will, you would lose your money on. Um, it's going to be about 100 percent loss and about a third of those companies, you will get some of your money back or break even uh, on. And then about a third of them will be your winners. And those are the ones that will return, you know, 10, 20 times, you know, the money that you put into them. And so it's figuring out which is which. And um, one of the things I learned early on is we were spending way too much time with our companies that weren't going to make, it. you know, the value props were just not proving out and um, I, one of my fund mentors put his arm around me one day and he said, David, you can't save them all. Decide who <laughs> stays in the boat. <laughs> and uh, so uh, sometimes I need advice like that because my charity and my business kind of merge sometimes to the point that I can't tell right. which I'm doing. So I need uh, someone to give me clarity and make sure I'm doing my fiduciary responsibility as a fund manager.
0: Obviously with your background, education and so on, you definitely have a mentoring approach and a teaching approach, which I think is obviously a key to success in any startup. But given that, do you think that we're in a market these days where there are too many startups? Um, some some speculation out there about, wow, there's there's too much froth in the marketplace, too many new companies, and uh, now you know irrational exuberance is starting to set in again. You got SPACs for these things to match up. What are yeah. your thoughts on kind of where we are these days?
2: Well, you know, it's gotten cool to be an entrepreneur, maybe too cool. I remember when I was coming along, you know, if you told your parents you want to be an entrepreneur, it was like saying you want to be a rock star. And they were like, no, 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 you're going to go work for IBM, get it out of your head, you know. But today, you know, we have these massive ecosystems. I mean, uh, Mark, you know what it's like. here in the triangle, you know, air. I was out sometimes four or five nights a week at some entrepreneur startup event or pitch event, and um, there are grant programs and accelerators. My, my accelerator is 100% free. We don't take equity. We don't charge. We even pay the rent for them. So this is why the first chapter of my book, is Are You an Entrepreneur? And the biggest criticism I got on my book is you spend the whole first chapter talking people out of being an entrepreneur. You know, I... I I think that you need to be happy in whatever you choose. And some people like the adventure. They love the stress. They like being a little bit afraid every morning when they get out of bed, not knowing if they're going to make it. Some people thrive on that. And other people, it makes them absolutely crazy. So I, I think that we need all kinds of people in the world. And if you're cut out to be an entrepreneur and you thrive on it, then that's great. But you shouldn't do it just because it's cool to be an entrepreneur, you know, right now.
1: That's a great segue into talking about your book here, The Startup Hats, one that I've, I've read plenty of times and we'll put that out on social too, because it is a great way to master the many roles of the entrepreneur. And a couple of things I want to touch on, right? And you've been a big listening to you talk and talk in the past, talking about the navigator's hat, right? In business modeling, which you always had a good, you know, idea, like creating that compass. Can you talk a little bit more about why business modeling is important?
2: Well, each section of the book is a hat that you have to wear. Bankers, construction, right. sales, leadership. And you know, think about being an entrepreneur, Mark, you know, is that you can't be super good at anything. You have to just be good enough at everything. And as soon as you can, you, you're going to take those hats off and try to find someone else who can wear it better than you. In the early days, you got to do them all. And of course, planning is a big part of knowing what ventures not to go into is just as important as knowing which one to go into and that's where i get into the modeling figuring out your assumptions where how do you come up with those assumptions where can you find proxies or, or reasonable starting points to model that business If the model's correct, every business is successful, you know, Uh, so I think in that chapter, I talk about the early explorers, Magellan and those guys, and, uh, you know, they weren't any, probably any better seamen than the other captains that we don't know their names because they drowned. They were just really, really good planners, you know, they knew how much food, they knew where to go, they knew how to estimate their distances, they were navigators. I mean the, the victory was won before they ever got in that boat. And this is why people tell me, they come in my office and they go, I quit my job yesterday because I want you to know I'm serious about this. And I'm thinking, you idiot. Dude, you don't want to start your burn now. You you, you know, you you we can do all kinds of stuff to de-risk that business before you quit your job. All you're doing is just stack you know, running through your burn now for no reason and, and but that, that kind of
1: stuff. So from the salesman's hat aspect, right? I mean, we all know that sales is the lifeblood of any business, right? You have to be good salespeople. But I mean, I've known a lot of the companies that gone through, you know, your accelerator that you invested in. I've talked to these guys personally, and some of them are coming from an engineering background, they don't really have that, you know, that's grasp on sales. So when you're sitting there talking to these, they don't have that kind of that hat perfected. I know they don't have to have a perfected, but they have to be somewhat good at not just to sell what they're, what they're building, but to sell to, you know, potential partners, employees, whatever that looks like, other investors, you know, what are some of the key things you show them or teach them about sales itself?
2: Yeah. It's why I have two chapters, one on sales and one on sales management because they're two different skills. You know, I tell my CEOs, you know, your business can survive about anything but lack of sales. If you're just making sales, you'll have some runway to figure out all the other problems, you know, around service and customer support and, and, you know, stability of your product and all that stuff. But you got to have some sales. So uh, sales is just being to speak in terms of value propositions, you know, and uh, I see even seasoned salespeople who aren't very good at selling. I get a marketer cold call sometimes and I just sit there and work with them because I'm dude, that's your opening line. I said, and I'll start working with them on the phone a little bit, you know, um, <laughs> because they just don't know how to tie value from in to, they don't, they state a fact and they don't tie it to a value proposition or they don't ask any probing questions to figure out which value props are even meaningful or important to you. They don't identify the right decision makers, you know, or the gatekeepers in the process. And they, uh, they don't know how to handle objections. They end up getting sideways with a customer. So there's all kinds of ways to screw that up. And I think a lot of it is because people don't respect sales. They don't realize that it is every bit as complicated as computer programming,
0: just in a very different way. And when you think of sales, I mean, I think that sales reflect sort of a value proposition in the way that you just articulated it and then you have to execute against it. You know, most recent data, if you take the pandemic and now hopefully going into post pandemic, would argue that the companies that are creating the most value are here in the tech world. So take the NASDAQ 100, right? The biggest stocks. There's Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet A and B, I believe, and Tesla. And they they make up like 50% of the NASDAQ in terms of the market value. And, and I, I was reading that if you add in a couple of other companies, you get basically 51% of all the equity out there. And now private companies, it's mostly tech that is developing value. So when you look mm-hmm. at the overall market, if you agree with that assumption, what are the key trends you're looking at these days in tech in new startups that are going to create the next value in our markets and uh, for that matter as business models? Is it education? Is it healthcare? Is there sectors or is it everything all at once?
2: Our fund thesis, Les, we invest in early stage B2B software companies. So our investments are in, we do have some higher ed investments that are doing really well. We have some CRM, type vertical investments. We invest in a lot of healthcare IT We've yeah. done some fintech. We don't do cryptocurrency. We don't do, you know, some of the things that that are hot right now. I, I'm a little bit traditional in the fact that, you know, kind of like Warren Buffett always, you know, said, you look for real value, you know, right. the numbers have to solve a real problem. It doesn't even have to be super complicated technology right. for me to invest. I want to see a pressing real business problem that you have a solution to. I I want to be able to write a white paper on it and show it to an intelligent business decision maker, and know nine out of ten times they're going to go. "Hmm, There's no reason that we shouldn't do this. And and, you know, we've only had one 100% loss out of both of my funds, and I think that we are outpunching our class right now because we are staying very true to that. You know, I want real demonstrable ROI. I may not get the next Facebook, but that's okay. Uh, We're we're base hitters.
0: And following and chasing the trend may not be the actual answer in, at the equation, right? And, you know, tech companies are just, it,
2: it's just great. I mean, I love innovation. I love people figuring out new ways to do things. I mean, if you think about, you know, we're talking about moving to a $15 minimum wage. As a country, we're not going to be able to compete with our cost of labor.
0: Right. You
2: know, anyone in the world is willing to make that part cheaper than you are, you know, in this country. So the only way we're really going to compete in the future on a global scale is through our technology and through our innovation.
1: So when you look at things, you know, again, kind of staying in this, you know, what the post-COVID world may look like or how that is. And I know that you wrote about this a little bit, maybe back in January, really talking about how recurring revenue startups are considered a safer choice for investors. You know, why do you believe that?
2: Because they have recurring revenue, Mark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Answered in the question. I mean,
2: look, I own a brewery and a coca company, a hotel. And let me tell you, last year was tough when you don't have recurring revenue. It's nice to have those two, three-year contracts, recurring revenue, you know, and you know that money's coming in every month. It makes your forecast much more predictable than having to eat what you kill, live hand to hand, as it were. Month. So the SaaS based businesses are ripe for investment because they want a pop of money up front to build this technology. It's going to be the gift that's going to keep on giving. And once you align those bits, I mean, being in other businesses has really made me appreciate software. You know, we don't have to order raw ingredients, we don't have to cook it or refrigerate it or transport it. I mean, once we align the bits in the right order, you people just line up and you just right. keep taking those same bits, and it's, it's zero gravity. You're just distributing those same bits over and over and over again. So it's highly scalable. The downside is you got to put the money in up front to build it. And that's where the venture capital comes in. So it's perfect for venture capital and the kind of returns that we want to see once that thing is built.
1: We were talking about this in kind of our pre meeting here. We're talking about these. Big tech companies like Twitter, Facebook, are they becoming too powerful, right? And I know that you had some some people interesting were, were kind of replying to that article. But, you know, just give us your thoughts on that part of it. Where this is going for like companies like Twitter, Facebook, and other companies like
0: that. And Mark, you're referencing an article that David wrote recently, right? Correct. Correct.
2: Yeah, on the WRA TechWire, I have a monthly column that I do there, and I think a couple of months ago, my article was on censorship and the big social media companies, and and I think that my position is maybe a little bit different, but. It's from what most people believe but it's right in line if you look at the groups uh engine or the bc uh, national association of venture capitalists they all agree that laws that are going to take social media companies like facebook or twitter and force them to not be able to moderate their content is going to be damaging. I mean, I know that people think that, oh, this one is far left or far right and they're influencing our politics and all of that, but hey, you can choose what media you listen to. You can pick Fox News or some other news channel. People have a choice, but these are private companies. This is not a freedom of information. This is not a freedom of speech. You know, the Constitution says government will pass no laws. These aren't governments. These are businesses. They can have any user agreement they want. And they can say, you know what, if you're going to use our website, you can't post porn on it. Okay, you're moderating content. Now, the question beyond that is how much more do you want to moderate? Do you want to say that your statements have to be truthful? What if you're telling someone to do something that's going to damage their health? Do you have an obligation to moderate that? I think if you look at the recent thing with Twitter and, you know, banning Trump, that had to have been an agonizing. I'm so glad I wasn't on the board of that company. What a horrible choice they had to make, Mm -hmm. you know, because uh, that was like a third of their followers were following Trump at the time. And, you know, if they were all about the profit, then you would want to let anyone say anything they want. You know, the more followers, the better. So actually moderating their content is not good for their businesses. It, you know, can you imagine a CEO going into the board saying, OK, we're going to take our number one poster who has more followers than anyone. And we're going to ban them. Right. How do you think the board, you know, how's that going to affect our dividend? Right. You know, it, it, could, it could not have been a good decision. But if they say, OK, you don't have to follow our rules then, but everyone else does. Or do you just take it down and say, okay, people post porn, do whatever you want, say whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It's a tough call. It really is. But I don't think government getting in there and saying what you can and can't moderate. Now that does become a freedom of speech issue. When you start telling companies what they can and can't tell their customers to.
0: Well, that's an interesting perspective. A number of years ago, I did a documentary on what is cyberbullying called uh, submit. And it got a lot of traction in schools and civic organizations and so on with the sense that at that time, Facebook, Twitter, even some of these other smaller social networks that are no longer around needed to actually do something to prevent what was cyberbullying and really some very bad outcomes such uh, as teen suicide. Do you think, and our podcast is called Net Effects because we believe that network effects is one of the most powerful forces in society and technology and business and so on. Do you think there is an accountability or a responsibility for moderation than looking at the other side of the coin of this argument for large social networks as we see more of the effect in our society of content coming through these social networks? Do they have an obligation to moderate rather than to be banned from moderating? I think companies should be free to choose to post whatever user agreement they
2: want. And I think consumers should be free to choose. I, I will click this agreement and agree to these terms or I won't. You know, there are some people who aren't really interested in the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. Right. And so they will go to a site, you know, bullshit.com. And, and I, I just made that up. Don't do it. But, but they'll go there. there because it says what they want to believe, whatever the conspiracy theory is, right. whatever. And they should have a right to go there and drink the poison if that's what they choose. Other people should say we're building a reputation as credible journalists. We're going to fact check, you know, the stuff that's put on our site. We're going to try to be unbiased in what we do and report conflicts of interest. And, and if that's their thesis and that's what they want to put out, then they're going to attract people who are looking for that. But, you know, we believe in the free market. Let's have a free market.
0: And, and just as a quick question to follow up, then let's use the example of bullshit.com, which I just, just tried to go to and, and I, I wasn't able to find any articles I liked. But if you have, take somebody like Medium, which is sort of trying to do that and also curating amongst the audience by giving claps or thumbs down and so on to say, hey, this is good journalism, this is good publishing. Are the models more like that? that are going to succeed, and I'm not saying specifically medium, but more like the ones that that can self-moderate and also audience moderate to help them create and curate proper content. Do You think those models succeed going forward? Maybe,
2: honestly, less. I was just uh, hoping that the bullshit.com guys don't sue me. But,
0: uh, <laughs> well, we'll, I, we'll, we'll, what a disclaimer. Yes.
2: Some kind of fact checking, but you can even be biased in your fact checking, which facts you mm-hmm. want to check. And right. so, you know, if someone wants to be biased, they can be biased. You can be biased by deciding what goes on the front page versus what's on page seven. Right. And both can be completely truthful. So I think people are going to be biased. And I think that consumers just have to be smart and decide where they're going to get their information from and how credible are those sources. Just like your medical advice. You go to Dr. Fauci and the CDC or do you go to, you know, uh, Mama Pudan down in, you know, wherever the lady that was on the other night, you know, out of her Haitian tent discussing herbal cures for COVID, you know. Right. I mean, you got to do what they told you in going to school, you know, consider the source.
1: We definitely live in, a, in an echo chamber these days for sure. And that's a big problem. And people are going to hear what they want to hear. They're going to follow what they want to follow. And it's really hard to argue against with those people anyways. And whatever you believe in, it doesn't really matter because, you you're not going to change somebody's opinion. And now with social media, it just elevates that voice, right? And for me, I don't spend a lot of time on social media anymore. You know, I'll do some LinkedIn, you know, some Twitter and following companies and people. But anything else, like I don't watch the news because I think I'd hang myself. But a lot of that is there. And and personally, it's not good for you. And, and And as we kind of make that transition to talk a little bit more about, you know, personal transformation. So when you're kind of looking deep within yourself, you know, how have you personally transformed, you know, yourself during COVID as a father, husband, executive, investor?
2: At first I was amazed at how effective I could be on zoom. I was like, wow, no travel time. I'm having like nine meetings a day, but I've come to feel now that there's a price that we're going to pay. I think it's hard to build relationships and trust. Zoom. I do think that there's going to be a price to all this newfound efficiency that we have at some point. I think it's all good. I think new modalities are awesome. And sometimes they're forced upon us. I will never go back in the grocery store ever again. I've discovered how the joys of <laughs> ordering online. Um, and I probably won't drive to Charlotte or Charleston as much as I used to, you know, or Atlanta. Uh, you know, I'll go, yeah, maybe I'll skip that, you know, and just uh, do a zoom meeting. So uh, it's great. I have spent more time with the family simply because I didn't have that drive time and business was slower in general last year, at least after we stabilized everything, but spend time reading. I love, I've discovered listening to books, Uh, my books available now on audible and I actually got an account to listen to it. And I was like, wow, all these other great books are out there. And uh, it was hard for me to read because I read all day long white papers. Right. I have 100 email messages a day. The last thing I wanted to do at night was read more. And I've discovered that uh, books on uh, Audible and, and even fiction I've started listening to again is great because I can rest my eyes and listen to it. And it's all good. I wish I had a, you're talking about the echo chamber. though. I, I wish there was a clear your cache on YouTube. I may just have to create a whole nother account because it's like, oh, you like this? And, you know, I was looking up some stuff on racism for something I was writing and YouTube now thinks that I'm a racist and would really like to have all this content. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, I can really see how this echo chamber can, can come about. Because as soon as you express a little interest in something, you think the whole world and everybody in it is, you know, the exact same way as you. and. I understand them trying to, now on Netflix, I like that. It says, oh, you like uh, Game of Thrones? You'll probably like this too. It's great. But when you're looking for news sources and diverse opinions, it actually becomes, I think, something that works against us.
0: Yeah. Now that happened to me, except for me with YouTube, it was like Jerry Seinfeld. Now every time I'm up on YouTube, and I literally was just looking for this one thing. He had an interview with Eddie Murphy, and I kind of wanted to hear it. Mm-hmm. Now, all I get is Jerry Seinfeld stuff coming to me, and Al Pacino impersonators. <laughs> that is all I get on there.
2: Better but, than Jerry Springer, I, yeah, <laughs> I I
0: must admit. Jerry, Jerry, but I, but I'm always like, what's up with that, you know? And and I'm like, okay, that's enough. Uh, so <laughs> that brings us to. Our last segment in the podcast, The Rapid Fire Questions, and it goes around sort of the personal background and tastes you might have around entertainment or around other parts of your life and recommendations for our listening audience. So these are five questions. Answer them with the first Mm -hmm. response that comes to mind. And I'll start off with who is your favorite singer? Probably Josh Groban.
1: Favorite movie?
0: Groundhog Dead. And that is, by the way, that is why chromosome thing like men can watch that over <laughs> and over and over again. I'm not sure my wife <laughs> finds it as entertaining. And it's true about most of my movies that involve either Will Ferrell or well, sometimes Adam Sandler. All right. So favorite actor or actress? Well, Russell Crowe is a great actor. He, he could be anybody. Uh, yeah. He'd be hard to.
2: I like most, just not everything he did.
0: He is a great actor. That is that is so true. And, and uh, I have a good friend of mine who lives near him. And says that, he said, you know, just being around him, you recognize how talented this guy is. That That is, that's a great choice.
1: Besides Startup Hats, what is the one book that you recommend to all your entrepreneurs?
2: Oh, gosh. You know, everybody says The Lean Startup, but I honestly didn't get a lot out of The Lean Startup. I, I um, It's probably heresy to say that, but like two chapters in, I was like, really? You know, it's like, um, it just seems like common sense to me. You yep. know, find out what people really want before right. you spend a lot of time building it, you know the end. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, but there are a lot of great books. I read uh, a couple of years ago, The Founder's Dilemma, which I thought was amazing. The very first sentence, you know, with success comes complexity, and with complexity comes the seeds of our failure. And I just kept rereading this sentence over and over again, because the whole book is about that sentence. In fact, I bought that book many times and sent it to my CEOs when they get to like their A round of funding and <laughs> start okay. thinking about the B round. I, uh, I send them a copy of that. Beware the complexity of these machines you're building. It's not about the machine. It's about what the machine was built to do. So I don't know if that's my favorite. Well, anything written by uh, Stephen Covey. I mean, that's a must read because it will help you not only in business, it will help you in your marriage, it will help you manage employees. It's just about personal integrity and what it means to align your actions with your stated beliefs. And, and lots of people said it, uh, philosophers said it a thousand years before Covey. Covey was just the first master communicator good enough to get it through my thick skull.
0: And so I give him uh, kudos for that. So th- this is a side question. This is like an extra bonus one I'm going to ask, and this is for my own <laughs> interpretation. What do you think of these two books, Zero to One and blitz scaling. Like I said, the last thing I want to do is read at the end of the
2: day. <laughs> <laughs> let me find it on uh, Audible and all.
0: You'll <laughs> let us know. Very yeah. good. So in, in the next 12 months, as our listeners think about what is going on in their life, their career, And forecasting into the future, obviously, you've been good at figuring out what's coming next or you couldn't be nearly as successful as you are. What would you recommend to our listeners to think about during the next 12 months that would help them and what should be their priority? In other words, what should they be thinking about most in order to be successful going through the next 12 months? Personal, social, business. For
2: entrepreneurs, I've said, you know, hey, this can be a great thing for um, whenever there are big changes, there are huge opportunities that present themselves. For every industry that's been hurt by COVID, there's been another that's been tremendously helped by it. And so it's just figuring out what is the new modality? What is the evolutionary path and how do I get in front of it and help people get where they already want to go? And so uh, I like times of big changes because That's when big opportunities uh, do present themselves. Unless, you know, I mean, if you're an investor, statistically, you still cannot do better than early stage investing. The early stage small funds still outperform later stage large funds, hands down, every year. And so we all talk about the big funds and the $100 million checks. But if you look at IRR, you know, the actual return on your money year over year the small little early stage funds are outperforming. And I think that's gonna continue. And it doesn't have that up and down that the stock market has. If the stock market you know, is having a horrible year, it's okay. My companies aren't gonna an IPO anyway. I don't need an IPO market. I need some strategic who says, ooh, that's cool, that would look great. We need to add that to our portfolio of products. And here, I'll pay you a premium for it. So we're very recession-proof and a great place for investors to put their money. I'm shying away from commercial real estate right now. I just, I don't think we're going to need as much of it as we've needed in the past. Um, But those are, you know, I mean, just things are the only thing that's guaranteed is there's always going to be change and just finding the opportunities in that and don't get too functionally fixated on anything. It's like we tell our businesses, whatever made you successful last year is almost certain not to be the thing to make you successful (laughs) in the year to come. You know, So don't get comfortable or back to Andy Grove. You know, how do you figure out how to put yourself out of business? You know, he was so great because he was like, OK, if, if let's say the board brings in a whole new management team. They fire us all and bring in a whole new team. What would those guys do? I mean, that was how he would yeah. start a conversation. And, you know, that's a, that's the blank slate. You've always got a blank slate if you think about it and, and try yeah. to think from that perspective. But Then go back because everything else is just a migration strategy. Right? right? So always begin your thinking with a slate.
0: That is fantastic. <laughs> I want to thank David Gardner for being here on NetFX Podcast, where you learn about social, digital, and personal transformation. David, you've been a fantastic guest. I hope you will agree to come back again. And uh, we thank you because our audience gets a lot from this sort of wisdom, experience, and intelligence. And you've exhibited all of that in spades today. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.